Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. And today, we have one of our most popular instructors on, Amy Graham. Welcome, Amy. Thank you, Rebecca. All right, Amy. Uh, first, for those who maybe have not had the pleasure of having you as an instructor in our classroom, can you give us just like that three-minute Amy story? How you got into product, why you love it? Oh, my goodness. Uh, my background's actually quite unique. Some uh, folks might uh relate to it. Uh, I actually started off in human resources management. I moved into operations where I was the director of ops for a period of time while maintaining my HR responsibilities. I also did a lot of project management experience. So I got my PMP certification at one point in my career. And then uh, we were positioning our company to sell and we were trying to get off of our legacy technology platform, move to a new platform. My boss, who was the COO at the time, came to me and said, hey, you've got some project management experience, so I need your help. I want you to help manage this software development project. Um, and because I'm crazy and I love a challenge and I say yes to everything, I said, yeah, of course, I'm all in. Um, so I had the opportunity to manage this very large multi-million dollar software project um, where I oversaw a team of engineers, business analysts, project managers, product people, you name it. Um, and through that experience, I actually landed myself a position in technology. So I shifted out of the HR operations world, moved into the tech space. Um, I became the director of technology solutions and uh, managed uh, application development team um, for several years, managed large dev teams, small dev teams, built everything from mobile apps to consumer-facing portals, um, reporting engines, data warehouses, custom development on content management tools, CRMs, all sorts of fun stuff. Um, and then at that point, we were acquired by a much larger company, uh, publicly traded about, I don't know, 50,000 employees or so. And uh, at some point I was asked to move into product. We were this very mature, large organization. We had every department you can imagine except for product. So I was given the opportunity to actually create a product team from the ground up. That's when I came to Pragmatic. Uh, at the time it was Pragmatic Marketing. I took uh, all of the courses, uh, went back, started implementing the framework and it completely changed my career. I initially started off managing one particular line of business uh, for one product. And then by the time I left that company, I was managing a global product function across multiple businesses. Super exciting. Um, I've got some hands-on experience, obviously, implementing the framework. Lots of successes. I have some failures um, as well because uh, not everything is easy. But um, very, very passionate about this and super happy to be here. Oh, you can tell you're passionate. We are so glad to have you here. Uh, and and you're just such a great addition to the team with that very background and all the different experiences. And uh, I know every student who's had you as an instructor is, is a lucky one. All right. Something you said in that opening was the say yes to everything, that you are a say yes to everything person. And that's an excellent segue to our conversation today, because this is about how do we stop saying yes to everything? Every product person listening to this podcast knows there are more opportunities than there are time and resources to do it. Right. And so it's really, really what it, probably our most important job as product people is to know what to say no to and what to say yes to. 
So yeah. today I want to dig in on that topic and go, okay, how do we find the right things to say yes to? So I think first and foremost, um, just at a, like a super high level, it's incredibly important and critical that organizations have a consistent way of evaluating all of those things that we could potentially say yes to or no to. Uh, so we have to have some sort of process and mechanism um, in which we can evaluate. So that's like the first kind of overarching thing is make sure we've got a consistent process for this. Um, secondly, I would encourage people to think about the fact that not every problem we hear not every idea, not every suggestion, whether it comes from an executive or a salesperson or somebody external from our company out in the market, not everything is worth solving. So that's the first step is, is this problem, this thing, this opportunity even worth solving to begin with? So one of the things we teach is to have some sort of test. Uh, you know, I call it the smell test. So it has to pass urgency. We need to pass pervasiveness. So it needs to be something that's broad, uh, a problem that's broader in our market. It's not just affecting one customer. Uh, and then also is their willingness to pay? Is, is this a viable option? Is the market willing to pay to have this solved? Uh, so those are the three initial tests that we, we talk about in terms of just at a you know basic understanding, is this even worth solving? And I, I think that's, that's, I love the urgency, pervasive, willingness to pay, right? And that's just, should someone solve it in general, right? Is this a problem anybody should attempt to solve? What's, what's, and I think that's the first step, right? Second step is, is what though? Second step is, well, all right, now we know it's worth solving. It's worth somebody solving, but is it right for our organization to solve? There are some things that we may not want to chase. There are some opportunities and market problems out there that are not a good fit. They conflict or go against our distinctive competencies or it's just flat out not a space we want to play in for various reasons. So that's the second step is to determine, okay, we know that it's worth somebody solving, but is it a good fit for our organization? So some of the things that you can look at are, well, for one, how does it align with your distinctive competencies? Is it something that fits nicely with your company's DNA, with what you're known for, what you're best at, you know, that we, we literally call it your, your DNA. So things that you know, things that you have, things that you do that not all of your competitors have or know or do, and how does it fit with those things that you're best at? You can also look at uh, your strategy. So what is your your strategy out there? Um, who are you trying to pursue or who are you trying to win? What types of things are you um, trying to build and bring to market? And how does this align with that? How does it align with your current distribution strategy, the way that you're currently selling your products and the way that the market receives them? Uh, you can look at how does it fit with your um, reputation? Or another way to say that would be, do you have a reputation in this market to deliver a solution in this space? Do you have credibility? Would people trust you? Um, so there's a number of things that uh, you can think about or analyze. You also wanna take into account your competitive environment. What does the, the competitive space look like for this? If you were to build a solution, take it to market, how many people would you be competing against? Is it two? Is it 20? Is it hundreds? Is it a highly competitive space? Um, would you be the first to market? What kind of competitors are you going up against? Are you go, going up against like, a, you know, a quote unquote venture back startup? Or are you going up against a, a really large 
well, you know, formed, mature company like a Google or an Amazon. So that's part of it too, is assessing the the space that you would be playing in. And if you have an opportunity to succeed there, would you be participating? Could you potentially lead that area? So I would say that would probably be the, the second big step is to figure out, is it a good fit for us? So you talked a lot about different factors that an organization can compare or could could decide if that's the right opportunity for them. Are those factors the same across all organizations or how do we determine like the filters of which we look at an opportunity? Um, so I think they could apply across all organizations, but it could be product specific. You know, like for example, I've had students come through class that are building internal solutions it's something that they're 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 building internal technology for their companies, um, or they're building something that they don't monetize. They don't sell it, and so there might be some translation there or some mapping. You know, maybe there's not a um, a competitive landscape in the true sense. Maybe that maps to something else. Uh, so there could be some some tweaks or kind of customizing we do there. But in general, I would say at a high level, those are pretty standard um, across you know, yeah. the different organizations. I think the consistency of it is is key too, right? Like as long as we're looking at each opportunity against those same ones, uh, yeah. then that lets us make sure we're not, you know, changing the answer key to suit the question that we like. <laughs> we- uh, yes, that is super important. One of the things that I'm most proud of in my career is establishing that consistent evaluation process that I talked about at the very beginning. And Regardless of who was submitting the idea, who was submitting the feature request, whatever it was, um, everybody had to fill out this this opportunity intake is what I called it. It went through the same process. We had a very consistent, methodical way to present these to our stakeholders and to review them on a monthly basis. And that made a huge difference. It helps you reduce the tension and sort of the uh, emotions and the politics that can take place inside of an organization and allows you to really let that data shine through and may help make you um, or help you make the decisions, I should say. And for those of you who are listening who are members of the Pragmatic Alumni community, there is some great uh, work that Amy shared in there about her opportunity intake form and process. So be sure to check that out. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think it's such an important step to have all things go through because we've all said yes to things we shouldn't have, right? That the problem was great, but turns out we didn't, we didn't have the skill set necessary to solve it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But that's not yeah. where we stop, right? Because I'm still going to say, yes, there's, you know, there's a ton of problems to solve way more than we could. And there's still more opportunities for us to go after that fit with us as a company than we can go after, right? So how do I take that next level of prioritization and not just say, yes, it's an opportunity we're solving. It's one that we could solve to, to moving it to it's one we should solve. Yeah. So certainly um, the like really granular level of detail and kind of not the final step by any means, but would be some sort of formal official business plan. But one of the things that we talk about in class that, um, I personally feel very strongly about, and I know it can be very successful because when you're still in this early evaluation stage and you've got an opportunity that's early in its its life cycle, if you will, um, we've got a tool called the solution matrix. 
And the solution matrix is a two by two matrix. On the vertical axis, it talks about the investment. So what is the investment that your company has to put forth in order to bring this thing to market, in order to solve the problem? And then on the horizontal axis, we have impact a customer. So what I really like about it is that one, it talks about investment because everybody always wants to know, what is it gonna cost me? What is, what is it going to take to deliver on this thing? Um, and I really like using the solution matrix early on because it doesn't set us up for failure. And the reason I say that is because sometimes we try to get down to a dollar figure too soon and we don't know, we don't have enough information. So by thinking about some previous deliverables, some previous projects that we've delivered on, you know, something that was low investment, something that was medium, something that was high, and then taking this new opportunity and comparing it against those things, it gives us a way to get directionally correct with what that investment looks like. And so we can use a comparison to try to figure out where we might land um, from a scope perspective. And then I love the investment um, or excuse me, the impact scale, because it holds us accountable to that market-driven outside-in philosophy that we teach. And that is so important to our success. So by truly understanding what is the impact to the customer, not necessarily to us, while that is important, we want to make sure that we're doing things that you know we're prioritizing and we're solving problems that matter most to our market. We are giving them solutions that have significant impact whenever possible. Um, so those two things are fabulous attributes to assess and are, are, we can reasonably assess, assess them at a fairly early stage. And then, as I said, as we get further and further into the process, we can get more granular with that analysis and get more detailed with our data. And I think it's it's so powerful for, for, as you said, kind of the investment thing to get to the dollar amount, to get to the actual number, it actually takes quite a bit of time and investment, right? So if we mm -hmm. can do sort of an early swag that says, yep, this is, and that comparison is a great way of doing it, it's really powerful. Um, because on the other side of that too, is so many of us in software and with software backgrounds, you know, it is sometimes hard for, for salespeople to think of investment in the same way, because it's, it's not like we're going out and, and manufacturing. It feels like you could endlessly, but there is, it's still a, it's still a comparison and it's still an investment and we still you know, have lost opportunities by doing it, but getting that, that early look that doesn't require the deep research and business case, good accurate number that allows us to compare, I think is huge. And then to your point, like, if it's not going to make an impact, I don't care if it's easy. It's just exactly. noise. Right. Just <laughs> exactly. noise then. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, companies make decisions all the time to do something because it sounds cool and to do something because it is easy. And those are big reasons why things fail. Um, it's not a it's not a good reason to do something just because it was easiest or it was cheapest for development. That's not being market driven. And um, unfortunately, you know, going through business planning and writing a full-blown business plan and getting to that really quantified data can take time. And we have to have a way early on and throughout the course of an opportunity's life uh, as we're evaluating it to do this analysis at different levels and to continue to make good decisions. Um, you know, you've got multiple opportunities you can do. So now we know it's worth solving. Now we know that they're right for us to solve. We still have too many. 
So how do we filter through those? Well, let's look at the ones, let's check out the investment. Let's look at what the impact is. Let's see what kind of products or features these might create for us. Um, and then here's another way that you can actually use that solution matrix. I like to teach my classes that this is a window into your market. Your window is going to shift no matter what you do with or without us. So we can have, you know, low investment, low impact type of products or features that move to high impact products. You can have high investment that have low impact that move to high investment, high impact. We can have stuff that backtracks. Stuff can constantly be moving. So it gives us a way to sort of look at our, our market. It gives us a way to look at our current portfolio. And then it's a tool where we can start to plot out our existing products and then these new opportunities to see what that that visual looks like for our portfolio. And are we making decisions in the right areas or not based on our strategy? All right, so we talked about how do you decide if it's a market problem you should solve or should that should be solved, period. How do you solve it, decide if it's something that your company could solve? And then how do you prioritize still within that rich ground? Um, I know you work with lots of students and I know you yourself have lots of experience. Can you, do you have any great sort of stories or examples of how you've used those filters, both either for good or because we forgot to do it and it turned out bad. We all have those. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Um, Let's see. Well, you know, a long time ago in my career, um, we had an incredibly successful product. It was a service. It wasn't a physical product or a a piece of software that we sold. Um, It was a service that we sold to other businesses and it was... um, in the uh, backup care space. So it was a benefit that we sold to employers and it was very successful. And we started to hear all this chatter. Um, Our sales team and our executives were coming to the product team and they were saying, hey, our clients are asking for pet care. Not only do they want care options for their children and for their adult and elderly Um, loved ones, but they also are wanting a pet care option. And they said, everybody wants it. And we were like, oh, wow, everybody wants it. (laughs) Our famous words. Because that's what everybody says, right? Everybody wants it. So I I literally said these words and I tell my classes to say it too. Like, that's fantastic. If everybody wants it, we should have no problem getting the names of, you know, three to five clients that I could talk to, to gather this data. And I remember, I'll never forget it. We ran this opportunity through our process that I just described to you. Um, And there was a level of urgency. It was actually better than I expected. Um, There was much more urgency than I ever imagined to be true. It was actually quite pervasive. We had data to support the number of um, homes in North America that had pets, how many, you know, what percentage of Americans thought about their pets as their, their children and things of that nature. So we had some, some really good, decent data um, that spoke to urgency and pervasiveness. But when it came to like the willingness to pay, when it came to all of the other uh, items that I had in my scorecards that we were using to evaluate, like impact, for example, um, it just wasn't there. And it was something that everybody was talking about. Sales was putting a lot of pressure on us to deliver this. And I remember showing them the detail, gathering the data, filling out these scorecards, presenting it to my product council, saying, okay, we did the due diligence. We evaluated this opportunity. Here's what it looks like. Here's the data. And it was actually a really easy decision to say, okay, we're not going to do this. We're not going to get into this space. It's very clear, at least right now, we can't make money. 
um, and look at all these other things that we have that look far more attractive in terms of the attributes that we were evaluating. And we made a, a business decision not to, to chase it. And our sales team was part of this. I made a strategic decision to have a stakeholder from the sales function on our product council. Um, and we, we, we basically tabled it and we didn't bring it up again. And we were able to now spend that energy and that brain power on other things that were much more impactful to our market that could turn a profit um, and create some revenue for us. So that's just one example, but um, having that process to rely on and running it through, regardless of if you're building hardware, software, or service, I mean, it was it was a breath of fresh air to be able to go through that and make some really good informed decisions versus guessing or using people's opinions. And I, I think that's that's such a great example. And I think it's a really good illustration too that we forget when people bring ideas, they can come from any part of the organization, right? And you think that's ridiculous. Uh, and you just want to say no, but you know, that that leads to tension and that leads to people fighting back, not because the answer should be yes or no, because they don't feel heard. It doesn't feel like it went through a process because yeah. I think when you do go through the process, like you talked about and the evidence says, no, no one argues with that. It goes, oh, okay, that's great. You're right. We'll go over here. And then again, to your point, you stop having the conversation. There's stop being noise about it because you've, you've put it through the, the sort of paces, you've put it through the process and you're like, okay, uh, we got to clear yes or no. And that's really, I think the most important part. Yeah. And Rebecca, you actually reminded me, I had one more experience that sometimes I tell in class. Um, I had a boss who was an executive, so they were on the, um, they were C-level. And this person came to me at one point in my career and said, like, they literally stopped me in the hall. Um, I was in town where our corporate headquarters was located. And they stopped me in the hall and said, hey, we've got this idea we've been chewing on we think we should form a partnership with Uber. And every time somebody uses our product, we're gonna send them a discount code on their next Uber ride. Well, long story short, our product had nothing to do with transportation, nothing to do with ride shares. And so I really struggled to make the connection, like what does this have to do with our product? What problem are we trying to solve? And this was an executive. This was somebody like two grades above my pay grade, somebody you don't say no to. And we're faced with this as product professionals every single day. But I remember sort of managing up, if you will, and reminding this person, why did you hire me? You hired me to maintain the integrity of our product, to make really good business decisions, you know, to, to hopefully be making decisions based on data. So he, he essentially was like, what do you want? You know, what are you asking for? And I said, give my team some time to do some research. We'll really dig into this. We'll do some due diligence. We'll come back. We'll present it to you. And let's make sure we're making an informed decision before we just run off and start to, to build this thing. You know, there was this idea we were going to integrate our mobile apps and all this stuff. It would have been a million dollar project minimum. So I went and gathered all this data. My team helped me. Um, you know, we delegated. We talked to somebody from Uber, brought all this data back. And here's the, you know, the worst part about the story is that the opportunity looked terrible. And we were, you know, we spent some time on this. The best part about the story is because I showed this executive the data, because we brought this to the table and we ran it through our evaluation process, we made a much better decision um, because this particular person still wanted to, to move forward, even though I had showed them how terrible the data looked, they wanted to move forward with um, 
the intention that maybe this was going to give us some really good PR. This was the year that Uber had just hit the market. It was super flashy. It was very popular. It was seen as really innovative. And uh, we thought maybe we'd be able to get some press from it. We could, you know, make this big splash and do a press release. So anyway, um, they decided they just, they still wanted to move forward with it. But the best thing, the best lesson here that I, I like to tell my classes is that because I brought the data to the table and we did our jobs, uh, we made a better decision about the implementation of it and the investment of it. So we didn't waste our engineers time. They never lifted a finger. They didn't develop one line of code. Instead, we managed everything manually under the covers, duct tape, chicken wire style. Um, we got our executive to agree to a three-month pilot. I set up success metrics. At the end of the three months, we didn't meet any of the metrics. We killed the project. No one ever said another word about it. And then again, we were able to go back and start to refocus our efforts on, you know, better investments for us and our market. So... But, you know, and it's a, it's a great example, right? Where you show the data, it does not imply yes, uh, but it, that's okay. Sometimes they do, we you know, we do it anyway, but, but it allows you to set, change the, the bumpers a little bit and change the definitions of it with that in mind. Uh, and I think that's, awkward, that's also a win, right? Getting them to agree or not isn't necessarily the only answer, right? You may have something you really want to, like, guys, this is amazing. Let's say yes. And they're like, we can't do it now, Right. But, they, but they've seen that vision and they start to see other, like there's all kinds of gray areas where it's still a really successful uh, process to go through. Yep, absolutely. All right, Amy, we talked about lots of different things today. If you were gonna have our listeners do two things differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today, what would it be? Ooh, two things differently tomorrow. I would, so... I'm a big person or a, a true believer in like making sure you have the foundation laid before you just try to start to execute. So I would say the first thing would be to reflect on your analysis or evaluation process. What does that look like? Do you have something in place? Is it consistent? Are you using data? Are you using facts? Are the right people participating in that process? Secondly, I would encourage them to reflect on the criteria or the evaluation criteria that they're using and ask themselves, is it market driven? Because a lot of organizations are definitely analyzing things. They're evaluating opportunities, but we're using inside out thinking. We're using very internally driven drive, you know, drivers like uh, you know, the, the financial impact on us internally or something like that versus thinking about things in the market, the impact of solving it and whatnot. So I would say reflect on your evaluation process as a whole, just in general, to make sure you can build on something solid there and people trust it. That's huge. You need to have buy-in from your organization. They need to trust this process. They need to know that when if they have an idea, when they submit an idea, it's going to be heard. It's going to be treated just like anything else. Um, and then reflect on your criteria and ask yourselves if it's market driven. Great advice. All right, Amy, thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure having you on today. You're welcome. 
All right. That does it for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your company, your product, and your career. 